Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, May 9th, 2021, and this is show number 835. Well, we're recording this on Mother's Day, so we better keep moving, but I just wanted to say happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. Well, this week, I got to be on the Daily Tech News Show again with Tom Merritt and Sarah Lane. We discussed a very broad study, 430,000 people. It was done on 10 to 15-year-olds, and it was studying the effects of social media and tech in general on these teenagers. The study was compared to the same study that has been conducted since 1991. So it was kind of interesting to see the effect of social media and tech on those kids. We explained how TSMC is expanding its chip fab business into the U.S. as well. Probably the most interesting thing we discussed was a new technology from a company called Flawless, which creates realistic audio dubbing of movies by actually modifying the the facial motions of the actors in the movies. It It is really, really crazy cool. You have to see this one to believe it. Check out this episode of the Daily Tech News Show in the show notes or subscribe to DTNS in your podcatcher of choice and look for the episode from May 4th. Speaking of Daily Tech News Show, let's start with a contribution from none other than Tom Merritt. Everything is fiddly. Saturday, I took my MacBook Pro out of my office, unplugged it from the CalDigit dock, and headed into the backyard to do a little work in the sunshine. When I sat down, I was presented with the top menu, my beautiful background picture, nothing else. Nothing that I could do seemed to be able to get the dock to show up or any of the windows that I knew were active on this machine. I ended up rebooting to fix the problem. In rebooting, I was notified that Sidecar was now disconnected. Ha! That was the problem. Sidecar, if you don't know, is a function of macOS that lets you extend your desktop over to a tablet, particularly an iPad. When I unplugged the laptop from the CalDigit, it had been extended to an iPad sitting in the office, as well as my main Dell monitor. So when I walked into the backyard, of course, the Dell monitor was gone because I wasn't connected to it anymore, but the Wi-Fi was good enough that I was still connected to the iPad. I just didn't know it and couldn't see it. So there was no other way I could have fixed that other than to go back into the room uh, and look at the iPad to find settings to turn off Sidecar because it had decided to put everything on the iPad monitor instead of on the laptop monitor. Uh, So there you go. Lesson learned. Next time I unplug the laptop, make sure to disconnect Sidecar first. Everything's so darn fiddly. Oh, man, Tom, that makes no sense at all. Why wouldn't the internal display have become the primary screen as soon as it was disconnected from the dock? Surely that's an obvious scenario for which the developers at Apple should have tested. Sheesh. Back in January of 2014, I reviewed my fancy new webcam, the Logitech C920, that Steve got me for Christmas to replace the built-in EyeSight camera on my Mac. Back then, the C920 ran $64, and it was a fantastic upgrade. Not only was that a great webcam back then, it's still a great webcam to this day. I've been using it for over seven years now, and it's been fantastic all that time. Logitech still sells the C920, but it has gone way up from uh, $64 to $80. 
I eventually bought Steve a C920, and when his parents upgraded their iMacs to Mac Minis and needed cameras and microphones, we bought them both C920s, which they also use to this day. The 1080p C920 doesn't come with any software to control it, but as I told you back in 2014, there's a great app called Webcam Settings, and it's in the Mac App Store. It runs a menu bar app that gives you control over things like white balance, exposure, brightness, game, and even zoom and pan. I like that Webcam Settings also lets you save your configuration, so if you have controlled lighting, you can have a consistent color and quality each time you use your webcam without having to faff about with all the settings. Now, a long time ago when I was working, a video guy explained to me how important lighting is to video. You know how when you take a picture at night inside your house, the still images look blurry? He demonstrated the same effect with video. He waved his hand in front of the camera when he had good lighting, and it looked nice and smooth. Then he turned off his video lights and waved again, and his hand was a complete blur. I've never forgotten that demonstration. For my birthday last year, Steve bought me the Elgato Keylight Air to update my lighting for video. The Keylight Air is an LED flat panel mounted on a tall stand, and it's tall enough that it can fit over my displays, and it gives me a nice flat light on the right side of my face. Unlike ring lights, which do provide excellent lighting, it doesn't give me that kind of crazed white circle reflection on my glasses. It's also a smart light, so there's an app for the Mac and iOS that lets me change the brightness and the color temperature. Having an app for the light is cool, but I made it even better by using HomeBridge on my Synology to bring it into HomeKit. Once it was in HomeKit, I could add it to my It's Showtime scene, and it would come on when it was time for my live show. I know it's not that hard to turn on a light, but having something be automatic for the setup means I don't forget to turn off the phone or turn on my mantle light to make sure the heater doesn't come on, so having that scene is really useful. Now, you may start to notice a pattern here, but for Christmas in 2020, Steve surprised me with an Apple Pro Display XDR. I immediately propped my Logitech C920 up on top of it, and I was dismayed to see the front ledge of the camera mount hanging below the bezel and covering up a tiny bit of my display. It was unsightly to have that little chin hanging down nearly a half centimeter onto my display. I think I've been listening to Marco Ahmed too much. Uh, He's always worried about little dopey things like this. But in reality, I'd been thinking about replacing my trusty C920 with a 4K webcam anyway. Logitech worked with Apple to design a 4K webcam just for the Pro Display XDR, and they call it the, Fro- the 4K Pro Magnetic Webcam. And Steve got me the 4K Pro Magnetic Webcam for my birthday. Now, doing a review of the Logitech 4K Magnetic Webcam would be really mean, because you can pretty much only use it on the Pro Display XDR because of that magnetic connection. It doesn't have a little clamp. The good news is that Logitech sells nearly the identical camera that works for the other 99.9% of computer users, and it's called the Brio 4K. It has a standard way of connecting to a laptop screen or a normal display with two pieces that kind of gently balance the webcam in place. Not only does the Brio have a standard mount, it works with Mac, Windows, and even Chrome OS, while the 4K Pro magnetic webcam only works with Mac OS. Seems kind of weird. Anyway, in any case, if you don't have an XDR, every time you hear me say 4K Pro Magnetic Webcam, replace it in your head with Brio 4K, and then this review might actually be interesting to you. The 4K Pro Magnetic Webcam simply sits on the top of the Pro Display XDR, and when you slide it near the center of the display, the magnets kind of yank it into position, perfectly centered. 
It's very securely connected by those magnets, which allow the user to gently rotate the camera from horizontal to looking straight down with no fear of knocking it off the display. Now, it seems kind of funny to be able to point a webcam straight down, but now I can actually demonstrate things on my desk if I want to. I can't say I've needed to, but hey, I can now. Now that we're talking about the magnets, I'm going to start calling the camera the Logi 4K Pro because that's what it's called when choosing a camera from within macOS. The Logi 4K Pro comes with two USB-C cables, which I found kind of interesting. One is a full six feet long, which seemed excessive, but the second is just long enough to reach from the top of the Pro Display XDR to the USB Type-C connectors on the back of the display. The connectors on this short cable are at right angles to the cable so that when it's plugged in on each end, it's very neat and slick behind my monitor. That was kind of a nice touch though. Now I've still got to figure out a use case for the six foot USB-C cable for this camera if it only works when sitting on top of the Pro Display XDR. I mean, I guess I could move it around the room on six feet, but I don't know why I would do that. I plugged both my trusty C920 and the Logi 4K Pro in at the same time so I could switch back and forth and I was immediately blown away by the color of the 4K Pro. When I did my first test, I had my side window curtains wide open, which is a really challenging lighting environment. The C920 was completely blown out and desaturated, but the Logi 4K Pro looked vibrant and not washed out at all. While the C920 didn't come with any driver software, the Logi 4K Pro works with an app imaginatively called Camera Settings. You have to download it, but it works with this camera. This driver app can control the same things that webcam settings controls, such as brightness, color, intensity, contrast, white balance, and focus. In fact, you can run both driver apps side by side, and changing one changes the other, which is pretty interesting. I guess that makes sense because they're both talking to the camera. Camera settings doesn't allow you to save profiles like the third-party webcam settings, but since they control those same settings, you can save the profile and webcam settings. It's kind of a weird way to work, but it does work. Camera settings has another tab with a few more interesting controls that the C920 doesn't have. You can toggle between standard 4x3 and widescreen mode. Now widescreen on this camera is really wide at a full 90 degrees. That can be good, but it can also be a bad thing because you have to clean up more of your background when you're going to be on a call. Luckily, camera settings lets you change it to 78 degrees or 65 degrees. I have no idea why it's those very specific values, but I'm sure there's math somewhere to explain it. One very strange thing about the Logi 4K Pro is that in widescreen, the focus seems much sharper than it is in standard mode. In standard mode, it appears to be focused behind me. I even tried disabling autofocus and, you know, dragging it as far to the left to make it as close up as possible, but it was already focusing as close as it could. Now, another option to get the field of view you want to use, uh, the on-screen buttons in camera settings to zoom in up to five times, and then you can pan around and up and down to get your image exactly where you want it. I've noticed a few times when I'm on a video call and the other person is up closer or farther away, and with this level of control, I can zoom in or out to make my head the same size as theirs. There's nothing worse than where like your head is giant and the other person's like back away and you look idiotic. With the problems in focusing on the standard aspect ratio, I'll be keeping the camera in widescreen and zooming in to look as good as possible. I have noticed, by the way, that I have to always have camera settings running for that zoom to stay stuck, if you will. Camera settings lets the user toggle HDR mode on and off, but I'm pretty sure that, that toggles a placebo. I cannot see any difference at all when I play with it. 
One toggle is really funny. It's auto-rotate. I think that's funny because when enabled, the camera will auto-rotate if you rotate the entire XDR display. Now again, I'm trying to figure out a scenario where you'd even use the XDR in portrait mode and have your webcam stuck to it, but it's even funnier to picture the camera's job in that scenario. There's no place for the magnet to stick on the short side of the display. At least I haven't tested that. I suppose it's possible there's magnets there. But anyway, I think this is one of those features that because they could enable it, they did. Now the specs for the Logi 4K Pro say that it has built-in dual omnidirectional mics with noise cancellation. Now, I never purposely use the mics on the C920, even though I hear Steve's parents through their C920s every week in our family Zoom call, and it's pretty nice and clear. I decided to make a comparative audio file for you of first the C920, and then secondly, you're going to hear the Logi 4K Pro. This is the microphone from the Logitech C920, and it's probably two feet away from me. Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com. This is the Logitech 4K Pro magnetic webcam, also called Logi 4K. Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com. Obviously, I wouldn't trade my big girl mic for either of these cameras as microphones, and I'm not really certain which one is actually better. The C920 is pretty bassy and it's picking up a lot of room noise. I can even see it in the waveform. The 4K Pro is a much cleaner sound, but it sounds pretty tinny in comparison. I think I like the 4K Pro better for clarity of speech, which is what you really care about in video conferencing. I think it's listenable, and sometimes that's half the battle. But let's listen to those two in reverse and see if you form a different opinion, because a lot of people I've played this for liked the C920 with its bassiness more than the 4K Pro, but I'm going to play them in reverse now and tell me what you think. This is the Logitech 4K Pro magnetic webcam, also called Logi 4K. Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com. This is the microphone from the Logitech C920, and it's probably two feet away from me. Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com. Well, that was fun doing the experiment the opposite way because uh, we took a vote in the live chat room and it's pretty much split 50-50. We've got uh, some people think that the C920 sounds um, better, richer, fuller, and that the uh, 4K sounds uh, kind of echoey, but then other people don't like the noise that you can hear on the C920. But anyway, it's an interesting difference. Now, I was finishing up this article by taking a couple of screenshots of the camera settings app, and I accidentally bumped the text area at the bottom where it says Logi 4K Pro Control. Up from the bottom scrolled a secret section of the app I had never seen before. It said, select a camera, and it showed not just the Logi 4K Pro, but also the C920 that I had plugged in was there as an option. Now, remember at the very beginning of this story, I said there was no app from Logitech to control the settings for the C920 except for the third-party app? Well, looks like I was wrong. I kind of wonder how long this app has been around that I never knew about it. I know when I first got the camera, there was no, uh, there was no camera settings app. But if you do have a C920, there is a very nice app directly from Logitech to help you control your camera. The bottom line is that I like the 4K Pro magnetic webcam very much. I love the clarity of it. I love being able to zoom in. And I'm especially delighted with the improvement in color accuracy. I don't have that dreadful chin hanging over my display either. 
With the wide-angle lens, I can zoom and pan with this camera to get an even better image for my video calls and the NoSilicast Live show. The 4K Pro Magnetic Webcam is $200, as is the Brio 4K, which has the identical innards. And get this, you can actually get these webcams, unlike many other webcams. As delighted as I am with a 4K Pro Magnetic Webcam, I still don't think you can go wrong with the tried-and-true Logitech C920 for less than half the cost. Frank Petrie, also known as Wheels in the chatroom and in our Slack community at podfeet.com slack, is back with an interesting perspective on Apple's spring-loaded event. Let the backpedaling commence. After the conclusion of Apple's April event, many YouTubers and bloggers, myself included, began our assault on the new M1 iMac. Personally, I liken the design to a fifth grader who used the iPad software feature where you can make a square, circle, rectangle, what have you, perfect by merely drawing the shape, then holding the pencil in place when finished, which would then signal the tablet to snap the shape into looking professional. Now, the three main complaints were the chin, the two-color aesthetic, and the sacrificing of ports for thinness. And we tore Apple apart for days for releasing such an abomination. It seemed the main object was that the iPad Pro had to be thin. Looking at you, Johnny. We were back in the land of form dictates function. Now that we have all had the time to stare at it and learn all the internals, a fair number are now pumping out rationalizations as quickly as they possibly can. Mostly, they seem to appreciate the colors, but wish they had wrapped the matte finish around and onto the front shin. All right, I can go with that. The IMAX back will be seen by no one as it's going to sit on my desk against the wall. There's no rationale to hold it to the standards of a portable. Although, my late 2015 iMac, with its confusion drive, is about to become a portable any day now when I toss it out my third floor apartment window. The sacrifices made to achieve thinness of the iMac is of no import in this case, as it merely makes it look like a third-party knockoff. Colors Even more backpedaling seems to deal with the colors. Many are not in agreement with the two-tone effect of a solid color on the back, which, contrary to Tim's belief that that's the first thing people will see, when actually it's the first thing your wall will see, and the anodized version of the color of the chin. Many are not in agreement with the two-tone effect of a solid color on the background, which, contrary to Tim's belief, that that's the first thing people see when actually it's the first thing your wall will see and the anodized version of the color of the chin. I've seen several YouTubes where they have come to forgive Apple as this iMac is meant for the entry-level market. I find it interesting, their definition of an entry-level market, when you think of the power this device possesses. Even stranger, I believe one wag referred to it as the Zoom iMac, meant to appeal to a female demographic. Personally, I don't like the Mac finish. But then again, I may be prejudiced, because I remember the introduction of the Jelly Bean and its glossy case. 
I actually like that they're bringing color back. It makes the iMac seem more fun to work at, and it tickles my eyes. But they're still finding fault with the anodized chin. With that, I'm in all honesty on the fence. The thickness. I, for one, am never reneging on this primary disappointment. I believe if they could place the 3.5mm port on the side, there is no reason they couldn't have placed card readers on the side as well. Yet, to keep it thin, they placed all the internals directly behind the chin in order to achieve the iPad aesthetic. It simply could have been made nominally thicker to accommodate the interiors, the card reader, and the audio opponents, as Apple has brilliant engineers and designers. No one would have been upset, or even noticed for that matter, if it had been a wee thicker. Users would have rejoiced at the return of necessary I.O. There's no need for a desktop computer to weigh 10 pounds either. It's nonsensical. I heard one reviewer who went as far as to say as they were going to place an Apple sticker on the chin to make it feel more normal. Huh? Now, an interesting wrench has been thrown into all of this. Amazon and other retailers are selling the M1 MacBooks and Mac Minis at discounted prices. I can purchase an M1 Mac Mini, a sizable and inexpensive 4K monitor, and external SSDs for roughly the same price as a tricked-out iMac 24-inch. So now I have to wonder, what is my incentive to bother with an entry-level iMac? Another first-world problem. I love your reviews, Frank. I hope you do lots and lots more. I, I find them so interesting. I do feel compelled to make a couple of comments. The suggestion by the WAG that the colors are for female demographics makes me of two minds. On the one hand, I've heard several of my male friends say that if they were in the market for this model, it is definitely the purple they would go with. Secondly, is there something inherently wrong with appealing to the female demographic? I think it's safe to say that dark gray and silver would probably not be the first choice of many women, and yet those are the choices we've had for, what, a decade or more of Apple computers? It's interesting that Frank is annoyed that they didn't make this model thicker, thereby allowing them to have the card reader on the side. And yet iMacs haven't had the card reader on the side in a pretty long time. I agree it would be easier to access on the side, but I don't really see that coming back. I think we're more likely to see Apple eliminate the card reader altogether, since using a big girl camera or recorder is becoming more and more of a niche audience. I know there are loud rumors that Apple's going to bring the card reader back to their notebook lineup, and I don't buy that either. I contend that serious photographers probably use USB-C uh, hubs when they're on the road for external so storage attachment and for the card reader. And when in the office or home, I would bet most use a dock to enable a large monitor and plenty of ports, and those docks always come with SD card readers. So, yes, they could have made it thinner and accommodate a side card reader. I'm sorry, thicker and accommodate a side card reader, but I don't think we'll ever see that again. The next time you're listening to the NoSilicast or Chit Chat Across the Pond or Programming by Stealth and you think, you know, I really learned something interesting today while I was vacuuming. Or I was so entertained by that show I completely lost track of time doing my exercise. Maybe if that happens to you, you could take a moment and go to podfeet.com slash PayPal and throw a little bit of money to help support the work we do here. 
That's exactly what Craig Passman did this week, and it really does help offset the costs. Thanks so much, Craig, for your support of the Podfeet Podcast. Next up, we have a delightful contribution from my new friend and fellow podcaster, Bodie Grimm. He's the host of the Kilowatt Podcast, which is a show all about Teslas and other electric vehicles. Hello, everyone. My name is Bodie, and like many of you, last week I received my AirTags. Now, before you inwardly groan and roll your eyes. This is not a technical AirTags segment. Oh no, friends, this is an entertainment AirTags segment. You see, when I first got my AirTags, I had a little problem, and I'm not going to go into it here because this is an entertainment segment, not a technical segment. Nonetheless, my eight-year-old son was sitting next to me the entire time, and when we finally figured out the problem, I said, here, take my phone, and I'm going to hide the AirTag, and you need to find it. My son really enjoyed it, and eventually his twin sister decided that she wanted to play too. Before I go too far, I kind of need to explain how my house is laid out, because if this was a single-story house, this wouldn't be much of a game. I live in a split-level house, so I have a half a basement, a main floor, and then a second floor. So this game works because I can hide the air tags on any floor, and the kids have to kind of figure out over time which floor the air tag is on. Now, there's a problem with that is eventually, right now they can find it within five to six minutes. Eventually, they're going to get bored with this game. So I was thinking of ways to make it more fun. And I I've, I've, think I've come up with a pretty creative way to keep it fun for the kids and entertaining for me as well. I'm going to make up themed adventures for my children. When I say makeup, <laughs> this is this is kind of where it gets sticky ethically. I'm going to steal intellectual property from movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark, Temple of Doom, The Mummy, and Tomb Raider to make it more fun for my kids. Now, my kids have not seen any of these movies. So, as far as they're concerned, this is dad's intellectual property, not Steven Spielberg's intellectual property. But I don't mind borrowing. And we have the equipment to make this work. We've got plenty of Nerf guns in the house. We've got Nerf bow and arrows. We've got Nerf swords. We've got shields. We've got tons of stuff. So what I'm picturing is once Indy steals the idol, yeah, I said steal. He stole it. Once he steals the idol and he runs through the darts, that's a perfect thing for an automatic Nerf gun. Shooting around the children, not at the children. But that kind of play makes the game more fun for them. We also have a 3D printer where I'm sure on Thingiverse or one of those other repositories out there, there is a Raiders of the Lost Ark idol waiting to be printed. And we'll just slap an air tag on the back of that thing and bada bing, bada boom, instant fun for the whole family. And to be honest, I'm super excited to tie my kids up in the basement and chant Kalima. Kalima, as I reach in and I pull out their hearts as our cats watch, because that's the kind of thing our cats are into. Now, I realize at some point my kids are going to actually watch these movies, and that's fine, because I'm going to steal a little bit from Alan Quartermain, which they almost certainly will never read or watch. And as time goes on, I can make it harder and harder until we get to the point of having to recreate The Exorcist, because they're just not into the other movies anymore. 
That way they can get scarred in the same way that I was scarred when I begged my dad to let me watch that movie because all the older cousins were able to watch it. Why couldn't I watch it at six or seven years old? Well, it turns out there's a really good reason why you shouldn't watch that movie. It'll scar you for life and you won't enjoy scary movies for the next 40 or so years like me. I'm just now getting back into horror movies after watching The Exorcist when I was six or seven. So I guess what I'm saying here is thank you, Apple, for providing a really fun way for me to interact with my kids while at the same time traumatizing them for the rest of their lives. Thank you for listening to me blather on. I hope you all have a really great week. I appreciate your time. All right, Bodie, you are certifiable, but I absolutely love this. You must be the funnest dad ever. I'm so glad you recorded for us, and I hope you do many more contributions because this was great. For everyone else, if you'd like to learn a lot about electric vehicle technology advances from Bodie, definitely subscribe to the Kilowatt Podcast in your podcatcher of choice. I think I need to find a support group for people who are addicted to screen capture utilities. I went through all of the articles on PodFeed, and I've talked about macOS's built-in screen capture. I've talked about Loom, Capto, Monosnap, Team Paper Snap, Parallels Toolboxes screen capture tools, Folge, and the now deprecated Clarify and Stepshot guides, all of which take screen captures. And yet, I'm here to tell you about yet another way to take screenshots on macOS. This new method is definitely nerdy, and yet not super hard nerdy. Whether it's actually useful and a method I'll even stick with is still an open question. I've yet to determine whether this is going to be more or less efficient than using any one of the other, what, like 28 ways I have of taking screenshots on my Mac, but I'm super excited about it. As I mentioned, I already taught you everything I know about the unsung hero of the built-in screen capture utility within macOS. It turns out you can control screen capture on a Mac using the command line in the terminal instead of the graphical user interface. This command has been around since macOS 10.2. I want to give two shoutouts before we start talking about it. JF Brissett tipped me off to the existence of this originally, of this command line version, and Helma Vanderlinden reminded me about it, and she had a play date with me to really dig into some of the options and to figure out a way to make it even more useful. I don't want you to be nervous about trying this because, you know, you literally cannot break anything trying it. But to play along, you have to open the terminal app on your Mac. If you've not played in the terminal before, it's inside the utilities folder inside your applications folder. The utility we're going to use is called screen capture. That's all one word, lowercase. In the terminal, you can get the manual for any command by typing man followed by the name of the command. As a general rule, in my many years of messing around in the terminal, I find that the man pages for most terminal commands to be nearly unintelligible gibberish. Occasionally I get lucky and I can suss out a setting here and there, but I often don't have the slightest idea what the manual is trying to tell me. Luckily, screen capture is the exception to the rule. So let's type man space screen capture into the terminal. At the top, you'll see the name of the utility and a description that's pretty obvious. The next line will look like utter nonsense. It's called the synopsis, and it says, I'm going to read you exactly what it says, screen capture space square bracket dash capital S-W-C-T-M-P lowercase C-I-M-S-W-X-T-O close square bracket space file. <laughs> That's completely clear, right? I'm glad they told us that. That's super useful. Well, it turns out with command line utilities, you type the name of a command and then you add flags to specify how you want the command to work. The gibberish inside of the square brackets is all of the possible flags you might want to apply to this command. 
The list of flags starts with a dash because flags in the terminal are always preceded by a dash. After the list of flags, it says file, and that's telling you in some cases you'll have the option to save your screen capture to a file by giving it a name. All right, let's start playing with these flags. Below the synopsis, there's a section for description. And surprisingly, it says, the screen capture utility is not very well documented to date. A list of options follows. I thought that was funny since the documentation is one of the most readable of any terminal command I've used. As I worked through it, it was a little harder to figure things out and I would have appreciated a little more detail, but it was still pretty good because because this tool is so simple, that's probably why I can understand the documentation. The description section lists each flag along with a short description of what it does. Let's start with the very first flag. It says dash C. It says force screen capture to go to the clipboard. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So let's see how this works. Open another terminal window, you know, command N. So you've got another terminal window. That way you can keep that man page up in the original window. In the new terminal window, simply type screen capture space dash C. The terminal will bring you back to the normal prompt and look like nothing happened. That's because the screenshot you just took is in your clipboard. Open an app into which you can paste an image, you know, like mail, and paste in the image. You should see a screenshot of your entire screen. Well, if you're anything like me, that's absolutely never what I want to capture. I normally want either an area or a single window. Let's take a look at a list of flags and find one that allows us to capture just a selection. If your window for the terminal isn't very tall, you may see a colon at the bottom of the screen. This is telling you that there's more to see in this manual. Just hit the space bar until you see end at the end, and then you can scroll up and down to see that entire list of flags. The dash I flag is for interactive capture. By default, the dash I flag will allow you to select a region on the screen instead of capturing the entire screen. When using flags and terminal commands, you can combine them after the dash. So to capture an area to the clipboard, we can put the C and I together into one command. So all we have to type is screen capture space dash CI. This time you should see crosshairs allowing you to capture a section of the screen, and then you can paste the resulting screenshot. The man page explains that in an interactive mode, you can tap the spacebar to capture a window instead of an area, just like you could if you'd use the GUI. Now, if you like interactive mode, but you want the default to capture a window instead of defaulting to the crosshairs, then you use the capital W flag. So screen capture space dash C capital W. If you want it to force only to capture a window instead of allowing any kind of interaction, use the lowercase dash W. So screen capture dash CW. So far, this has been fun, but a bit more work than using the keystroke command control shift four especially if you don't keep the terminal open all the time normally. So let's see if there's things that terminal command screen capture can do that we can't do otherwise. So that would make it worth doing it. I very often want to send a screenshot via email to the developer of an application to identify where I'm having a problem with their app. With the terminal command, we can take a screenshot that automatically launches the mail.app, starts a new email, drops the screenshot in all in one quick step. From the man page, we can see that the flag for this is dash capital M. Since we still want to capture just a portion of the screen, we'll add in the dash I flag. Since the dash capital M flag is going to paste into an email for you, you don't have to specify that you want the screenshot to go to a clipboard. So the command becomes simply screen capture dash capital M lowercase I. I think that's really slick and I don't know any other way to do that particular trick with any other app. 
Now remember, you can mix and match your flags. So if you want a window, window capture to go straight to mail, it'd be screen capture dash capital M lowercase w. Now it's not uncommon for me to want to mark up a screenshot before taking further action. And the easiest place to do that is inside preview. If you want your screenshot to open in preview, use the dash capital P flag. Note that that's a capital P, so screen capture dash CI capital P. By default, macOS adds a shadow around window screenshots. If you'd rather not have a shadow on your windowed screenshots, simply add the dash O flag to your window screenshot. Putting all these pieces together, it would be screen capture dash OI capital P. Now as a bonus tip, if you dislike the giant shadow on screenshots in macOS as I do and you never want them, there's a command to disable it for both the command line and the GUI interface for screen capture. It's what's called a defaults write command, and it's in the show notes. I'm not going to spell it all out because it's really long. Once you make that command take effect, you do have to restart the system UI server, and those instructions are in the show notes as well. Now, another trick the screen capture has up its sleeve is the ability to capture the screen of your touch bar. Now, I know touch bar isn't as useful as we all hoped it would be, but it's still a fun party trick to be able to capture it if you do find a use for touch bar. The flag for capturing touch bar is dash B. So screen capture dash BC would capture our touch bar to the clipboard. So far, I've been imposing my own preference for only capturing to the clipboard instead of to a file. So let's rectify that now. Remember when we talked about the synopsis at the beginning and it had the word file in the command string? To save your screenshots to a file, don't use the dash C flag because that's to the clipboard. Instead, add a file name with its full path to the end of your command. So let's do a simple interactive screenshot to the desktop. That'd be screen capture dash I, and then you put in the path. Tilde slash desktop slash delete me dot PNG will, will drop that delete me dot PNG right on your desktop. Note that if you use this command repeatedly and don't change the file name, it will overwrite your original file without ever asking if that's what you want. Or, and, I mean, it won't even add a dash one to the end of the name. Now, this might be a good thing because you won't get 17 deleteme.png versions sprinkled all over your desktop, or it might be a very bad thing if you think you took 17 separate shots and you discover that you only have one. Now, there are more flags I want to tell you about, but I bet many of you are thinking that while this is cool, it's awfully inconvenient to have to open a terminal, remember the flags you like, and then type it all into a terminal window. After Helma and I played around with these commands a bit, I said exactly that to her, like, this is a cool party trick, but I'm never going to do that. So she suggested we figure out how to put these options into Keyboard Maestro so we could assign keystrokes to them. Now, you're kind of thinking I've just taken you to a big circle, right? If we already have keyboard shortcuts for taking screenshots, what good is starting at the command line and creating keystrokes with Keyboard Maestro? What if I told you that with Keyboard Maestro, you could trigger any of your favorite options with one single keyboard shortcut? You'd only need to remember that one shortcut instead of a plethora of finger-straining options. Let's walk through the simple method Helma and I figured out that will give you this dream world I've just described. In Keyboard Maestro, you can set up groups of macros, so I created one entitled Terminal. These macros won't run just inside of terminals since they require interaction with other apps, but it kind of seemed cleaner to collect them all in one group. To create a macro with a terminal command inside it is super easy. I was like, I don't know, Helma, I don't know how to do this. This is going to be hard. And she's like, no, it's not hard. It's really easy. All you do is create a new macro, give it a name, search for the action called execute shell script, and drag it in. 
Then in the text field, just paste in the terminal command that you just liked. As an example, I created one called clipboard screen capture area, and in the shell script area, I entered screen capture dash coi. For the trigger, I chose a hotkey, and I'm going to use the same hotkey for every single one. I basically mashed down all the keys I could reach. Shift, Control, Option, Command, and I hit the letter T for terminal. Now, if I hit that keystroke, which will, you'll note is much harder than the built-in keystroke, I get my crosshairs, I take my screen capture, and I've got a shadowless capture in my clipboard. Well, that was easy. Let's make a second macro. I really like the screenshot to mail option from the terminal. So following the same process, I named the second one mail screen capture area. I repeated it one more time and made one entitled preview screenshot capture. And uh, I, that one was screen capture dash COI capital P. I gave all of these macros that same exact keystroke as my original clipboard macro, shift, control, option, command, T. Now you'll notice that I started the title of each of my macros with the name of the thing I was capturing, clipboard, mail, and preview. This is no accident. They are named purposely to start with different letters, and here's why. In Keyboard Maestro, if you give more than one macro the same hotkey trigger, it needs to know which one you mean when you use that hotkey combination. When this happens, it brings up what's called the conflict palette. This is a tiny little pop-up window that shows you all of the macros you have that use the same trigger. You can use your mouse to select the one you want, or if you find it inefficient to move your hands away from the keyboard, you can simply type the first letter of the desired macro to execute it. Well, that took me way more time for me to explain than to use. So basically, I mash down all the keys with the T, and then I can hit C for clipboard, M for mail, or P for preview, and boom, I'm taking the screenshot and sending it exactly where I want it. Once I had these first three made, I added a comment section to each macro to inform future me what that script does. I called it flags explained on each one, because I know for a fact that I will never remember what dash COI capital P means, like what, tomorrow, I won't remember that. I even got tricky and I changed the font to monospace so it's easier to read and I made the comments a nice orange color so they stand out. Now another advantage of putting these commands in Keyboard Maestro is that over time I can mutate these macros as I learn more about what I like and I don't have to learn any new keyboard shortcuts. I'm not going to go through all of the options in screen capture, but just let me let you know about a few more that are likely to be useful. You can create timed screenshots. You can have the GUI screenshot option show on screen. Like if you hit Command Shift 5, that's what you see. You can capture specific window IDs. You can disable sounds during screen capture and capture rectangles on screen using coordinates if you're of that persuasion. You can also capture video of your screen, including an audio track, and even have it show mouse clicks. Now, I was really excited about this uh, option, but then I fell out of love with it because as far as I could figure out, it only allowed you to capture your entire screen, not a user-specified area or a window. With the giant high-resolution screens that are more common nowadays, this will create huge files with information that's not super helpful to whatever it is we're trying to demonstrate. Now, I thought it might be fun to be able to take screenshots that were plopped into apps I use often, like the way mail is built into the command. So in Keyboard Maestro, I added a block to activate Telegram and another block to type the keystroke command V to paste. This works great, so I can take a screenshot, boom, it goes right into Telegram. Now one last com uh, comment about command line utilities. I said you could string the flags all one after another after the dash, but that's not always true. If a command doesn't work correctly, see if maybe one of the flags needs to stand alone. For example, if you want to force the file type, you use dash T. 
but that flag must be alone right before you specify the file type in all capital letters. So here's an example of an interactive screen capture without a shadow that will open in preview and I'm forcing it to create a PNG. It'd be screen capture dash OIP, that's capital P, and then space dash T, standing alone, space capital PNG. So it's got to be out there on its own in order for these commands to work. That took me a long time to figure out why was dash T not working until I pulled it out of the other string and put it off by itself. Now, I said at the beginning that I'm not sure I'll stick with this method of doing screenshots, but only having one keystroke to memorize and ha having that at my fingertips, all these different screenshot methods that are tailored exactly the way I like them might make me just enough to make me give up my muscle memory keystrokes and only use just one. For the last week, I've been using it and I'm really liking it. In any case, though, I had great fun with Helm on this and you can seriously lose many hours playing with all of the different options. Many thanks to JF for telling me about this and Helma for being my partner in crime. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions. Everything is fiddly recordings like Tom did. Your comments and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything starts with podfeet.com. That's any good at all. You want to become a patron of the podfeet podcast? That's podfeet.com slash Patreon. You want to be awesome like Craig and use PayPal? Podfeet.com slash PayPal. You want to join the conversation with other happy Nocilla castaways? You can do that on Facebook if you like at podfeet.com slash Facebook, or you can do it in Slack at podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, be sure to head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.